We're going to jump right into the text again this week. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, rounding out this chapter. If you will stand with me for the reading of God's word, Philippians chapter 2, that's verses 19 through 30. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because he heard that you were sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor. Because he came close to the point, he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Amen. You may be seated. This section comes out of what I think are some of the richest texts in the New Testament, and in a sense feels a little bit misplaced. We go from what's called the Christ hymn to Paul's travel plans. So, what's Paul doing? It might be helpful to kind of recap where we've been to get a sense for what Paul is up to. He begins the book by basically updating the Philippians on his situation. He's made it to Rome like they all wanted, only not in the way that he would have planned or hoped for. He's in prison. Now, that doesn't mean that the gospel has been handicapped. It is moving forth. It's advancing. He says that the whole praetorium or imperial guard, Nero might be trying to chain the gospel, but even those who defend him, the gospel has made it to them. And those in Rome as well, the brothers are preaching the gospel even more fearlessly and boldly, even if some of them are not doing so out of love toward Paul. And Paul, he hopes, he expects to be released from prison. But even if he doesn't, he says it's gain, right? Because he'll be ushered into the blissful presence of Jesus, which, no offense to the Philippians, is far better. <laughs> then Paul turns from basically his affairs to their affairs and addresses a couple issues. Their stability as the empire is tightening its grip on the Christians in their unity, which seems to be threatened maybe by two different kind of parties or factions in the church, as we'll see later. Even saying that now, I think we probably hear our own situation, right? The government, in some respect, tightening its grip on Christians, our unity being threatened by two parties that are grumbling and arguing. And then Paul puts forth this picture and model of Christian humility par excellence, Jesus Christ, that God the Son would become a man, with all of its shame and limitations to live on behalf of his people, to die as a criminal, to die a criminal's death in their place and for their sins, and in doing so, God has saved for himself a people. And because of the son's obedience, he's been exalted. And it's in light of this great salvation that we, that we work out our salvation as God is even working in us. So we move from this theologically dense and pastorally rich section to really what, what are Paul's travel plans. 
Okay, Jess and I and our family, we recently went to the beach in North Carolina. It's a big family. It's Jess's side of the family. There are 10, like, cousins or grandchildren. Large family. And given the nature of our family, there's a ton of planning. And your family's maybe not like this, so you don't get it. If you are, then you do get it. You feel it with me. I mean, I'm talking, we had pages and pages of Google Docs for our travel plans leading up to the beach. <laughs> okay? And I promise you, you don't care about them. If I read them, you wouldn't care. You probably would ask me to stop. Well, why do we care about Paul's travel plans? Of course, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training as righteousness. That doesn't mean that every piece of Scripture is as helpful as every other piece. Paul, on this service, he's explaining basically what comes next for him in the Philippians, but what he's doing under the surface is he's putting forward two men whom they know, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as living, breathing examples Paul has been commending and commanding this whole time. And what we'll see, I hope, is that they are like two halves of the to live as Christ, to die as gain coin. And in different respects, they give us this picture of Christ's humiliation, the becoming of a slave, looking to the interest of others, coming to the point of death, and then his exaltation. So they're giving us these kind of two sides of the coin, and these different pictures of Christ's own humiliation and exaltation. Again, you might hear about Christ's humility and think, you know, well, sure, he's the God man. <laughs> but Paul puts forth two normal dudes whom we can imitate as they follow Christ. And we see that God really is at work in us, working and willing, um, at work in us so that we might will and work according to him. So our text, it splits pretty nicely this morning. You probably noticed it. Paul's giving us two models to follow. That's how you could think about it. In the first half, Timothy. The second half, Epaphroditus. And specifically, Paul wants us to see something in Timothy's service and in Epaphroditus's sickness that is his willingness to suffer and die for the gospel. So if you're taking notes or you just want something to kind of hang your hat on for later as you're thinking about the text, meditating on it, discussing it in the parking lot, you can kind of grab a hold of it like that. He wants us to see something in Timothy's service in Epaphroditus' sickness. And through these men, we can look beyond them to see Christ. But he's also showing us that it's possible to work out our salvation as God is at work in us. So first we consider Timothy's service. Look at verse 19. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus. That is Paul, like a good, if you want to call him Calvinist, is saying, Lord willing. He hopes the Lord willing to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. So to reconstruct the events for us, Paul's in Rome. The Philippians have sent a gift of the Paphroditus. Paul is responding by writing this letter and thanking them and addressing some of these issues, right? Their disunity, their perseve perseverance um, in uh, an empire that's at odds against them. He wants to see that they are holding on to the gospel. So Paul wants to send Timothy. Timothy will come back. And what Paul is hoping for is an encouraging news or report about the Philippians. Paul. By God's grace, they've taken to heart what you were commanding and teaching and instructing. Right? They are holding firm to the words of life. They are working out their salvation. They are, um, yes, the government is making it harder for them to meet and is putting pressure on their businesses, but they are holding fast to the words of life. And no, they don't agree about everything, um, but they've come to agree on the most important things and their neighbors are noticing. They are shining like, world, like stars in the world. So Paul wants to be encouraged by news about them, and certainly Paul cares about a host of other things, right? They're family. Um, maybe the gladiator games in Philippi, 
I don't know, probably not. But Paul deeply cares about their spiritual good. It's of the utmost importance. So does he care about other things? Sure. But not enough to send Timothy, the person whom he cares about most, his spiritual son when Paul himself is stuck in starving in a prison cell. He'll risk losing Timothy not to hear about what they did this weekend, but to hear that they are indeed working out their salvation. I think even for us there's something to see here in terms of the type of news that we are most encouraged by. We live in what, it seems like a constant news cycle right now, and there's a lot going on. But more important than the ebbs and flows of the stock market, COVID numbers, polling predictions, the type of news that we should be most eager to hear about, like what's going on in the lives of our members this week? Is their love for the Lord cool or warm? How are their Bible studies at work, their evangelism among their parents? How is their fight against sin? Similarly, thinking about our partners overseas, like what's going on with the gospel in Dubai, with Brian Parks and Covenant Hope Church? How are the churches around us doing in sharing the gospel? What does the unity look like between our sister churches like Eastside and Harvest and Delivering Word? Okay, that's why we pray for some of these things in the pastoral prayer. And I pray that more so in our own lives, to hear about in one another. Paul then tells us why he intends to send Timothy in particular. Look at verse 20. I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. No one else. Timothy is in a class to himself. I don't think Paul's intending to just kind of throw shade at every other Christian worker that he knows. He probably means no one else that's coming to mind or no one else whom he could send from Rome. Okay, but what makes Timothy unique, and I think this is what he wants us to see, is that he's like-minded and he genuinely cares about the interests of God's people. Immediately we hear what Paul has been instructing the Philippians to do in the model he put forth in Christ. Look back at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude or mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Right? Instead, what he emptied himself, he took on the form of a slave. Timothy shares the same mindset as Paul, but more importantly, as Christ. He's willing to humble himself and consider the interests of others. Paul says he has no one else like this. Why is it unique? Verse 21 all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You see, there are other people in Rome, they just don't really care about the Philippians. Not genuinely so. Timothy is standing in contrast with, if you remember the brothers in chapter 1, verses 15 and 17. Paul says that people are becoming more bold to share the gospel in Rome, but some of them are doing it out of envy and rivalry. Some of them are doing it not out of a spirit of love, but competition, actually trying to harm Paul. So there are other people that Paul could send, sure, but they don't care in the same way that Timothy does. Sadly, you probably have had this kind of experience. You know, people who are, are doing gospel ministry, but they seem to be seeking their own interests, caring about numbers, perhaps, competition with other churches or ministries, building their own little kingdoms, it would seem. But friends, isn't that the problem at the end of the day for all of us? That we seek our own interests. That with every fiber of our fleshly being from the moment our eyes open to the second that they close, we are about seeking our interests. Now we don't, I hope, say this out loud. 
but we think we're more important than everyone else, right? Our roommates, our spouses, our children, our fellow members, neighbors, coworkers. And if you're more important than everyone else, you're not going to go out of your way to seek their interests. It's why we might be slow to check in with other members, slow to pray through the directory, or quick to anger when we've been sinned against, why we are slow to forgive, why we hold on to bitterness, why we're easily triggered and assume the worst when someone brings up that topic, why we can be slow to approach one another about unrepentant sin, why maybe we're slow to give up time and money for the well-being of one another. You see, self-interest puts us at odds with the interests of others and with the interests of Christ. I think this is what men and women like Timothy get. At the heart of it, they understand that seeking our own interests, when we do that, we don't seek Christ's interest. And then on the flip side, part of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness is concerning yourself with the citizens of that kingdom. Listen to these two verses again. For I have no one else like-minded who would genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those that is interests of Jesus Christ. This clarifies even what these interests are. They're not our hobbies or necessarily even our desires or needs, though they often can and should be the same. They're our spiritual interests. Timothy, like Paul, is anxious about the well-being of God's people. He is wondering, are my brothers and sisters in Philippi growing in their love in knowledge, in purity? Are they worshiping and enjoying and obeying the Lord Jesus Christ? How are they responding to the harassment of their neighbors? Are they moving from allegiance to state to greater allegiance to the Son? Are they still grumbling? These are the kinds of things that keep Timothy and Paul up. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. I think this brings us to what is the most remarkable thing in the text, more remarkable than Timothy concerning himself with the well-being of God's people. It's that our interests are the interests of Christ. I'm not sure if you caught that. I'll read it again. I have no one else who's like-minded who genuinely cares about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those, that is, interests of Jesus Christ. Your interests are Christ's interests because Jesus, the high king of heaven, has concerned himself with you. If you were to look at Jesus' social media profile, if he had one, under interest, it would read, my people. Right? Well, Jesus, what are you about? My people. What do you do for work? I care for my people. What are you into? My people, their well-being, their concerns are my concerns. This is, of course, most vividly seen in God the Son becoming a man with all of its limitations and weaknesses for his people to live on their behalf, to die as a criminal in their place and for their sins, that they might go free. You see, the work of atonement, it's done on behalf and for people. It is a priestly work. The thing about a priest, say, in contrast, especially to a king, whereas a king typically rules for himself, is a king, a priest's entire existence is dedicated to the service of other people. In their teaching, sacrificing, maintaining the temple, they are mediating, representing, living for, working on behalf of the interests of others. Jesus' priestly work, we see this obviously in the incarnation, that he is about the concerns of his people. But did you know that Jesus continues his priestly work in heaven now? That is to say, Jesus was not just about you when he was on earth. Your interests are his interests even now. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25. 
Now, many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. That Jesus, even in the exalted state, always lives to intercede for his people, applying the works that he has accomplished on earth. That Jesus Christ, the Lord, the one to whom every knee will bow, has concerned himself with us. That he is in heaven interceding, that our concerns are his. And again, I don't, when I say concerns, I don't mean that Jesus is about what we want him to be about. Right, that we would get that relationship or that job or that raise. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't care about those things, but Jesus is about us. He's for us in ways that we only wish we were for ourselves. Truly desiring our good and ruling the cosmos in such a way that all things work together for our actual good. He has taken up the concerns of his people. His heart is for his people. And I think this is what part of what Timothy grasped, that part of loving Jesus involves loving his people. Said differently, you can't love Jesus. You can't be about his business and despise his bride at the same time. Jesus is about his people. This is what Paul sees in Timothy, this genuine outward-facing posture, the concerns of Christ or the concerns of his. That means the concerns of the Philippians are his concerns. I'm sure that Timothy has his own dreams and desires, but they've taken a backseat to the glory of Christ and the good of his people. Timothy, I don't have anyone like him. He embodies to live as Christ. He lives out by God's grace, the humility seen in the Savior. But they don't need Paul telling them this. They know Timothy, verse 22, but you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Again, they don't need Paul to tell them about Timothy. They have experienced Timothy's care for them firsthand. Now, our congregation's young in that we haven't been around very long and the fact that we are very young by average age. Lord willing, in the future, this would be easier, but I think even now, if I were talking about hospitality and I mentioned the Bankstons, it's like, oh yes, you get it, you've seen it, you've experienced it. Or if I'm talking about the importance of intentionality and I mentioned the Chapmans, yes, you get it, you've experienced it. This is what they're getting with Timothy and Epaphroditus, this living, breathing model of what Paul is putting forward. They know because they've seen Timothy, he says, serve with Paul in gospel ministry. We see that it's in the ministry of the gospel, in the preaching and teaching of God's word and the caring for the saints. It's a type of proving ground for this humility because it's necessarily outward focus and sacrificial. So you maybe have seen it in your roommate's willingness to get up early and spend time with you in the word because it's a discipline you lack in. Or in an exhausted couple's willingness to do counseling with you once they've put their kids down in the evening. In the willingness of some of our women, like Elise, to put time in and after work to study God's word in preparation of the women's Bible study. You see, you don't have to be employed to serve in gospel ministry. You only need to care about the interests of others. And how has Timothy given himself in this work? Paul says he's served. I've said this numerous times, but here we are again. Okay, there's a word for serve in Greek, or various words, and there's a word for slave. And this is the verb tense of the same word that Paul has used over and over again for slave. Paul's not saying that Timothy has served in gospel ministry, like he became their butler, 
He's saying that Timothy has slaved with Paul in gospel ministry. Okay, he's been willing to make himself nothing for the benefit of others. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 1. Right out of the gate, Paul calls himself and Timothy slaves for Christ. Then shockingly, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul describes God the Son as having taken the form of a slave. That is for God the Son to become a man. The demotion is so unthinkable It's like God becoming a slave, that the eternal words become a babe. The rich one becomes poor. The judge on the cross is judged. The son is treated like a criminal. This is the type of posture of humility that Paul is pushing us towards and that he's showing that we see in Timothy. Again, he's this first half of the to live is Christ coin, and in him we see this same humble, slave-like posture of Jesus, this willingness to think less of himself Maybe to think beneath his station so that he might think about the interests of others. You see, there are no, there's no room for lords in gospel ministry, only slaves. Mark, 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus speaks of himself. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul spoke of his own ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I do not mean that we lord it over your faith but we were workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in the faith. Timothy is like a son to Paul in the sense that to look at him is to see Paul, that they are both giving themselves in this type of humble service to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, gospel ministry, it is a function. It centers on teaching God's word, on caring for the saints, serving them, loving them, but it begins with a disposition of care of humility, a willingness to plunge yourself beneath your station, which is necessary to do spiritual good to those around you. So how might we continue to seek the interests of Christ and his people? If you have roommates, like I said, it might mean rising early together to pray in the mornings, to study God's word. If you're a mom and your day's crazy and your children are crazy, it might mean just singing hymns in the home with them. If you're a dad, it might mean leading your family in worship in the evenings, over dinner even when you're exhausted after a long day of work. For all of us after the service, before jumping into kind of normal news, like did you watch the Grizzlies game? They lost, yes. And there's nothing wrong with this type of conversation, you know, enjoying God's good gifts in creation. But wanting to even raise ourselves to think about spiritual things, asking one another, what did you learn from the sermon? Or how did God encourage or convict you today? Midweek, inviting others over for dinner and asking questions like, what's something hard right now? How can I pray for you and serve you in this? So what do we see in Timothy? What is Paul wanting us to see in his service or slavery to the gospel of Jesus Christ? We see the same posture of Christ, that of a slave, one who genuinely cares for Christ's people and puts their interests above his own. Verse 23, therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon, but I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Okay, if it's not clear, Paul intends to send Timothy, and then after that, Paul intends to visit. He does this out of order, so it can be confusing. You'd think he would have started with Epaphroditus, but he hopes to send Timothy in the future. Then Paul himself, once he gets a sense for what's going on with him, hopes to visit But, past tense, he considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus, which they realized because they are reading the letter that he sent with Epaphroditus. Verse 26, since he has been longing for all of you and was nearly distressed because he heard that he was sick, 
Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For that reason, for this reason, I am very eager to send him, so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. So we turn now to our second model, Epaphroditus. Again, just as Paul wanted us to see something in Timothy's service, Paul's wanting us to see something in Epaphroditus' sickness. That is his willingness to suffer and die for the work of Christ. Okay, to kind of, again, reconstruct these events for us. It seems like what happened is the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to Rome. On his way to Rome, he fell really sick. Okay, and it was probably the case because he was taking money with him that there was another brother with him. This brother goes back to the church in Philippi, his, you know, PBC, and he tells them, Epaphroditus has become really ill. He's nearly died even. Epaphroditus gets better. He keeps He makes it to Rome with Paul, and rather than wanting to stay and kick it with Paul, he wants to go back because he knows the Philippians are anxious about him. And so God, in his mercy, Paul says, saved Epaphroditus to save Paul from sorrow, the Philippians from sorrow, to save Paul from anxiety. I think when Paul says here that God had mercy on him, um, Paul is meaning that God, in a very direct, miraculous way, saved Epaphroditus. Okay, it wasn't until the fourth century when Rome became Christianized that there were public hospitals. So when you get sick, there's like, there's no hospital for you to go to. And people in antiquity, if you get really sick, you really die. There's, there's just, there's no coming back from it. And so I think what Paul is stressing that God in his mercy acted miraculously for Baphroditus, for Paul, for the work of the ministry in Philippi. God saves him, um, but he considers it necessary to send Epaphroditus Verse 25, and he describes him, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. I've said this before, but Philippi, as a Roman colony, was socially stratified. Okay, so it's like you know someone based on their name and title and their citizenship, kind of where they fall in the pecking order. So we don't really have anything directly like this. You might think of the Indian caste, if you've been there and are familiar with it. Jess and I, we got to go, maybe you've been to Medellin, Colombia. The city sits like in a valley, Glormar knows, and it's really odd. It's socially stratified. So you know someone's social standing. It's not exactly tied to income, but basically based on where they live in the city. Okay? Now, we don't have something like that, but I promise you, we assess social value by looking at each other. Okay? In the way that we dress, perhaps skin color, um, what someone does for work, how executive, maybe entrepreneurial, what, they're do, what they do sounds, the type of car or home that they live in and what it might say about how much money they make. Um, so we have ways of assessing, not typically through title, though maybe in your subculture something like MD or PhD means a lot. Well, in a world dominated by allegiance to Rome and where status is given to those who jockey for power, Paul gives titles of honor to the most unlikely candidate Someone who's weak. Someone who got really sick. He's, of course, not honored for his sickness, but his willingness to die for the work of Christ. He understands what Paul has been trying to convey, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? That may Christ be honored in our bodies, whether by life or death. He gets what Jim Elliot famously captured. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. Your health your body, your family even, your finances. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose, Jesus. So who is Epaphroditus? Paul 
throws down on him these titles of honor. Some of them would have been the same exact ones that you could receive in Philippi. He is my brother. The most basic bond between Christians, Joshua taught recently that there is this new family that we're brought into when we become Christians. We experience it in a really tangible, visible manner when we join a local church. He's my coworker. He's about the same work, right? The confirmation, defense of the gospel. And he's a fellow soldier. This is one we probably don't understand as well because we live, you know, I'm not saying the most comfortable, but like pretty comfortable lives as Christians. In the history of the church, the church has been described in two stages. And it might be something you've not heard before. There's the church triumphant, which is the church as it is now in heaven and as it will be when Jesus returns. Like the battle is over and they are receiving the vision of God, beholding him now in heaven and as we will in the future. And then there's the church as it is now on earth, which has been described as the church militant. And that its members are soldiers under the command of Christ, struggling, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in heaven. To quote John Piper, life is war. This is what Epaphroditus gets, that we are in this full-time cosmic unseen to the eyes, battle between kingdoms. And Epaphroditus is like this wounded soldier coming home that really ought to be honored. He is also your messenger, that is your ambassador, your representative, and your minister on behalf, your minister, the minister of the Philippians on behalf of Paul, caring for him. He gets sick, nearly dies, verse 29, therefore welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Okay, real quick, I'm going to start with explaining the last part. He risked his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. It sounds like Paul's taking a jab again. <laughs> um, in a more literal rendition, that's what it sounds like. The NLT, I think, captures what Paul's getting at when it translates it like this. And he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. So it's not that the Philippians' gift is lacking, it's that their presence is lacking. They're unable to do for Paul in person altogether, but Epaphroditus is able to do that kind of as their minister, their in-between. So Lord willing, the future will go on mission trips. By God's grace, Lord willing, we'll visit Covenant Hope in Dubai. It's like, ain't everybody getting on the plane, you know? (laughs) We will send our messengers, ministers, so to speak, to care for them and to do work with them. But what Paul again is stressing three times in the text is that because Epaphroditus risked his life and nearly died for the work of Christ, that he should be honored. So again, what we see in Timothy is this kind of to live as Christ. And now Epaphroditus doesn't die, but we see the second half of the coin, that a willingness to die for the work of Christ. And in Timothy, again, we see the humility of a slave as he considers the interests of others. In Epaphroditus, we see it going even further in the narrative. It's the same Greek construction that he comes to the point of death. Okay, he doesn't die, and like Jesus who's exalted, Epaphroditus ought to be honored. And so in Christ we see what is the pattern of the Christian life, one that the prosperity gospel completely misses, that the cross comes before the crown. We see this in Christ, we see this in Epaphroditus, therefore people like him should be honored. Verse 30, because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Paul speaks sim- similarly in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, when he says that elders who preach and teach are worthy of double honor. So there's a type of respect and then financial um, compensation. And you could certainly, so thinking about what this means, you could certainly fall into a ditch of treating people like this, 
like maybe like a celebrity pastor. I've heard Matt Chandler say that people will come up to him with their Bibles and ask him for an autograph. <laughs> yes, and he has to remind them, I didn't write that book. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be happy to write one of the, to sign one of the books they did, not that one. Or you could treat someone like a, maybe even a pastor as a different class, like a priest. You could treat a missionary like a varsity Christian. Those are real dangers. That's not what Paul's getting at. But he's suggesting that those who work for the gospel, and in particular those who are willing to die for the gospel, they deserve a particular type of honor, respect, reception, care, and imitation. In basically every sphere of society and culture, we honor people or give out awards. Okay, So if you are into music, we have the Grammys. If you're into film, you know, for the best things, we have the Academy Awards. For the worst things, they give out the Rasbies, if you know what they are. Um, uh, if you're into sports, we have the ESPYs. The Nobel Prize, of course, is given for several categories. Physics, chemistry, medicine, literature, peace, economics. Even Michael Scott has the Dundies. The highest award bestowed by our government to civilian is the Presidential Medal of Freedom. It recognizes those who, quote-unquote, have made an especially meritorious contribution to the security or national interests of the United States, world peace, cultural or other significant public or private endeavor. It's given to uh, athletes, astronauts, actors, historians, journalists, philosophers, scientists, politicians. And if you're looking at it, it's really like the who's who of Americans over the last 50 years. Okay, we're talking about some of the most skilled, talented, brilliant, beautiful, productive members of our country. People like Walt Disney, Rosa Parks, John Ford, Meryl Streep, T.S. Eliot, Harper Lee, Yo-Yo Ma, Oprah, Tiger Woods, Bill Gates, the late John Lewis, who um, the country's been mourning and celebrating this last week, received one in 2016. Now, there's nothing wrong with honoring these people. And in fact, I, you know, in most cases, it's, it's obviously a good thing. But Paul is giving us a different category for the type of person that we honor. And not different category as in like, we have the arts and we have sports and then we have those who are willing to die for Jesus. It's like a qualitatively and categorically different group because it's for people who are doing the work of Christ. I think this is maybe the most encouraging thing about the text. If you think about Epaphroditus and Timothy, maybe especially in contrast to the list of people that I just read, the text makes no mention of their office, their ability to speak publicly, no mention of their business acumen. I mean, I think even thinking in the South, probably in churches that you've been in or have seen a lot of times, elders, they seem to be just like all the like godly businessmen. Not saying you can't be a businessman and be, and be an elder, but that's not what qualifies you for the work. It says nothing of their brilliance, their charisma, their connections, nothing about their degrees, emotional intelligence, or humor. They might have had and been some of those things, but that's not what distinguishes them. It's not why they should be honored. What sets Timothy apart is that he slaved with Paul for the ministry of the gospel, that he genuinely cares about Christ and his people. What sets him apart is this humility, this faithfulness, this caring disposition. And Epaphroditus, likewise, is worthy of honor because he was willing to die for the work of Jesus. There's something rare about men and women like this. You see, friends, you don't need degrees or money to be valuable, valuable in the kingdom, not even age. Just a willingness to be used by Christ. A willingness to use 
Paul's illustration from last time to be poured out like a drink offering to increase the worship of the fellow members and the nations to Christ. A willingness to sacrifice your status and import for the needs of your fellow members. You don't need a particular set of skills, just God's word in your hands, his spirit in your hearts, and his people among you. So if you are living like Timothy and Epaphroditus, praise God. May the Lord raise up more from our body. If you're not, I think just a good question for us to meditate on today is what is holding you back from living like a coworker, a soldier, from giving yourself to Christ-exalting, self-emptying obedience to Christ for his glory and for your fellow members' good and joy. So Timothy and Epaphroditus, they give us pictures, I think, of ordinary men who have been gripped by the extraordinary love of God. They are captive by their priestly king, Jesus Christ. They understand that he is worthy of living and dying for. May God raise up men and women like this from our body. May we strive to be those very saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness toward us, that in your mercy you would save sinners, that you would make us your sons and your daughters, that you would call us to such an important work to be co-laborers with one another and with you, as Paul says elsewhere. We pray that you would help us to put to death our earthly, even desires, and that we would set our hopes on heaven more and more. We pray that from our midst you would raise up men and women like Timothy and Epaphroditus, that we might encourage one another to your glory, that we might send people out to the nations, that the gospel might advance through our little body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.